And the rest, if you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, we'll be continue our journey through uh, this book. Thanks for uh, praying for me this last week as I uh, did uh, went to General Assembly, and I keep saying it's the gift that keeps on giving as I came back with uh, COVID, and that was a wonderful thing. You know, you hear about uh, COVID fog, you know, that kind of goes with it, and I'd, I'd heard about that. I wasn't quite so sure about it. And then uh, Tuesday, I, I experienced it, and I thought, Lord, this is maybe the most complicated passage I think I've preached in the last decade, and here I am with brain fog. It's like, what do I do with this passage? And uh, so uh, thank God that uh, it went away after Tuesday, and it, it, I, maybe afterwards you'll say, that explains a lot. Uh, <clears throat> but hopefully we'll be able to bring some level of clarity as we look at this passage. Let's read verses uh, 9 through 13 of Hebrews chapter 2. But we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I'll sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Let's pray again. Father, we plead with you that you will grant to us an understanding of your word. Spirit of God, that you would move and hold sway in each of our minds. That we would grasp the significance of the words that we see upon the page. And that from those words we would understand the mind of our God. We pray, our God, that you would go beyond granting us understanding. We plead with you that you will impact our wills, that we may believe that which we read. That in trusting you, we will draw nearer to you. We pray for our children and children's worship. Lord, would this be a ministry in which you reach their hearts with the gospel, in which you will transform them. Grant that they may see the joy of worshiping the true and the living God. And grant us, O oh God, that our lives may be changed. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start out by reading uh, from uh, Brendan Manning, The Signature of Jesus, which was kind of the sequel to his uh, work, The Ragamuffin Gospel. Many of you may have, have read that. The book really is, a, is about discipleship, and uh, that's the, the primary theme, and he gets right into that, and so I'm going to be reading from the early part. This is, we've been talking about our theme for this year, which is to follow Jesus, which really is what discipleship is, is following Jesus. Listen to what Manning has to say. He says, each one of us bears the responsibility of responding to the call of Christ individually and committing ourselves to him personally. Do I believe in Jesus or in the preachers, teachers, and cloud of witnesses who have spoken to me about him? Is the Christ of my belief really my own, or that of theologians, pastors, parents, and Oswald Chambers? No one, neither parents, friends, or church, can absolve us of this ultimate personal decision regarding the nature and identity of the son of Mary and Joseph. His question to Peter, Who do you say that I am? 
is addressed to every would-be disciple. I appreciate Manning beginning to address the, the, the reality of what we experience in our lives and that we, we live within a culture. It's a, a subculture of America, if you will, but it's a, a Christian culture. And it's very easy that in the midst of that culture that we can just go along with the, 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 the current, that we can just fall in step with those who are with us and, and with what everybody is saying. And in falling in step and in going with that current, we can miss that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is essential for every person. For each one of us must have that personal relationship with Him. And I appreciate that Manning pushes us to that point. I believe that's also why the book of Hebrews was written. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers in the first century. That is, individuals who had grown up in a culture of the church. It was the Old Testament church, the, the church of the old covenant administration of the covenant of grace. It's what they were experiencing at that time. But it was the church no less. And, and they were walking in that current. And then Jesus comes and begins to change everything. Suddenly their sacrificial system is, is fading away. And it's being replaced by, by new sacraments that are bloodless. Instead of having to kill the animal and to see the, the flesh of the animal and the blood of the animal, now they see the, the body and the blood of Christ symbolized in, in bread and in, in, in grape juice. And they're, they're trying to understand this distinction. Instead of the, the bloody sign of the covenant of circumcision, now they see baptism that is given to their children and to, to the new believers. And so they're experiencing these changes. They're trying to figure out what do we do with this? They've always been looking forward to that time when the Messiah would come, but now they look back and there is the Messiah. How do they make this transition? And the writer of the Hebrews is, is writing to them to help them. In chapter 1, he reminds them that Jesus is God, and the, the clearest description of the deity of Jesus anywhere in the Bible is found in Hebrews chapter 1, as he just lays out for them, he is God indeed, and therefore you can worship him. And in chapter 2, he begins to show that he's not only God, he's also man. That this Messiah has come in the flesh and he was a human just like us and he has reached out and connected to us. So he's not just the God, God in the distant, but he's the God who's right here with us. And he's beginning to demonstrate this to the, the Jews that, so that they might follow Jesus, which is their invitation to them. In chapter nine or chapter two, verses nine through 13, you'll, you'll see that in, in each of these there's a description of something that Jesus has done for us. In chapter, or in verse 9, he talks about how Jesus has tasted death for us. In, in verse 10, he shows that, that through his suffering, he leads us to glory. In verse 11, that he sanctifies us. In verse 12 and 13, that he joins us. And so it's by looking at these four gifts of Christ that I believe that the author of Hebrews is, is inviting people to follow Jesus, our elder brother. Four reasons why we ought to follow Jesus. So I want to look at each one and allow it to, to penetrate our minds and our hearts to, to understand what God is speaking to us so that we might follow Jesus, our elder brother. The first thing that he shows us is that, that he frees us from death. He frees us from death. I remember when I was, uh, I was a senior pastor of church, but that also meant that I was, uh, I guess I was solo pastor. I was also the youth pastor, and so I worked with the youth. And I think it's at that point that someone uh, described to me one of the major differences between boys and girls. The, one of the major differences between boys and girls is when a girl asks you to taste something, you probably want to. Takes a minute, but then we're like, yeah, I get it. 
I get it that, that there's something different. He uses this illustration of, of tasting in, in this passage. Taste and, uh, tasted death for us. Now we know in, in the Psalms we're told to taste and see that the Lord is good. But here Jesus is said to have tasted death. Well, that's something very different, isn't it? He's tasted death for us so that we don't have to. He doesn't come to us and say, oh, taste that. But he took that entire bitter flavor himself so that we don't have to. What does this mean that he tasted death for us? Excuse me. Just the residuals. We're getting past it. Um, to, to, to understand death, I think, is an important element of, of, of grasping what this means that he tasted death. To understand death itself. The first time we hear about death is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. And uh, God is uh, walking around the garden. He's introducing uh, Adam to all the stuff that is there. And he showed him the, the tree of life that's in the middle. He shows him all the other trees that are good for fruit. And then he takes him to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Really clear statement of God, isn't it? He says, in the day that you eat it, in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. He's clearly speaking of at that moment that death is coming. And what does he mean by that for us to, to, to think about that? I think when we think about death, we have a tendency to, to think about it just from, from our perspective. We can only see death from one side. And that's from the side is we, we see someone who has died and their, their eyes are closed and we recognize that there's a, a barrier between us, but that's all that we really know. I remember when I was in seminary, I was a, a volunteer uh, ambulance driver for the ambulance corps in the small town in which we lived. And uh, my first day I was on call, I received two calls. Both were traffic accidents. The first one was to a motorcycle accident in which two motorcycles had tried to pass a car that then turned in front of them and they ran into the side of the car. And the second one was uh, a, a single car accident. Um, in the first one, both, uh, well, the, the two motorcycles and the, the car driver all survived. But in the second one later that evening, the driver of the single, uh, the single uh, occupant passed away. And we were there trying to work with this man, and uh, we, we couldn't find a pulse. There was a doctor there who eventually declared him to be dead. And, and I remember looking at the man and recognizing there was no real signs of trauma. He was just dead. And I remember wondering, what's the difference between one hour ago? Yeah, his heart stopped. But it seems like there's got to be something more that has gone on. And that realization at that time, I'm, I'm also in seminary, so my mind is thinking about theologically what's going on, and the recognition that, that the reality, that the greater trauma than his heart stopping was the separation of his soul from his body. That was the death. That's what transpired. That's what took place. And to begin to think of it in that terms and begin to realize that death is something more than, than I tend to think of it. It's a little bit different than my mind usually goes to. 
I read Genesis chapter 2, 17, and I see that God has said, on the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. And then I turn my attention to, to Genesis chapter 3, and I see man eating it. In verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate, and I expect to read, and they both lay down and die. But I don't. Instead, I read, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I don't know about you, but I find that troubling. I said, well, why didn't they die? I thought Jesus, God said that in the day that you eat it, you'll die. But they didn't. They sowed fig leaves. They made a strategy. They hid from God. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe that was the death. When they hid from the presence of God. Maybe that is a, 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 a narrative of the death of Adam and Eve. Maybe death is something different than I've thought of it. You see, when we live our life, it includes God revealing Himself all the time, doesn't it? Sunshine. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the earth shows forth His handiwork. Is it true? It is. He's constantly showing Himself in creation around us. Look at the people around you. All of them are image bearers of God. What is God showing you with each human being that you see, except He's showing you something of Himself? Is He not? Absolutely. What about each act of kindness that you witness in a day? Is that not the common grace of God and that He has brought that into this world and He's shown something of Himself. Love. When you see a person, love another person. I love the line from Les Miserables, when you love another person, you've seen the face of God. Yes, because God is love. And He allows us to see that love and not just to see it, but to experience it. To be loved by the people around us and to love people. It's a rich experience. He gives us all of these expressions of who He is and how much of our lives, particularly outside of Christ, do we live blind to God and His presence in our lives. Because, as Ephesians 2.1 says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're unable to see. And even if we can see, we don't believe that which God has done in showing Himself to us so that when Jesus upon the cross cries out and says in Matthew 27 46 my God my God why have you forsaken me it's at that moment that he recognizes that there's this separation that something has transpired that he's facing at that moment death that it's a reality he's tasting it for us, that separation from God, which he's experiencing. To understand that death is that separation between us and God, a separation of the, the knowledge of his presence. And imagine that moment to die, to really die, and to lose that knowledge of God 
and His presence. But you see, Jesus tasted that for us so that we don't ever experience that. When we who believe in Jesus die, we will die to this world and this world will be separated from us, but our eyes will open and we'll see our Savior smiling in our face who will reach out His hand and wipe away the tear and speak those words we long to hear, well done, enter into your, pre- into your rest. And that's what awaits us. So at that moment, instead of being separated from the presence of God, we'll be flooded with a greater knowledge of it because Jesus tasted death for us. By God's grace. Look at this statement. I, I'm, I, was, I, I kept coming back to this over and over again at the end of verse 9. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It didn't say so that he would taste death for everyone, does it? But by the grace of God, he would taste death. Could you not also say so that he would taste death for all who receive the grace of God? Would that not be the same way of saying it? To begin to see how essential his grace is. That it's only by grace that he tastes death on my behalf. It's only by His grace that His tasting of death is efficacious for millions. It's by His grace. We read in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is His grace that has been operative in my life. We read about grace when we read about effectual calling, did we not? And to think about what His grace has done in effectually calling us. Let me remind you of what we read. It's a work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, then enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, He then persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. That's what His grace does so that it is only by the grace of God that He's tasted death for me. How do I know if I've received that grace? Well, the question is, do you believe? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God. He gives you even that ability to believe. At that time in which you become aware that all that around you is showing himself to you, at that time in which you become aware inside, you recognize your own moral guilt. You recognize, I've sinned against this God. I, I find myself uh, at his mercy. I'm, in, I'm indebted to him because I've, I've broken his laws. He made this world, and I didn't follow those rules. I deserve to be punished and I find myself in that, in that condition and I find myself helpless before this great God and I cry out to Him and I say, will you be merciful to me, the sinner, through your Son, Jesus, who's died on the cross? Why would I ever do any of that except for the grace of God that has gotten a hold of me? And He's done this work. And so if today you are, you are sensing something of that, you're, you're recognizing, I, I, I really need this Jesus. And right now, Bow your head and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. So I've sinned. Deal with me according to your death upon the cross. And if you pray that prayer, come and talk to me after the service. But come today. Because he frees us from death. And then he leads us to heaven. That's the second reason why I want to follow Jesus, my elder brother. He frees us from death and he also leads us to heaven. Look at verse 10. 
For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. The word bringing could, could be uh, uh, translated as to lead. Um, the, the word would have both of those uh, ideas. As a matter of fact, it's used in uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, in which we read, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Is the kindness of God that brings you to repentance. The same word that's used in both of these cases. And it's as God is kind to us and he's merciful to us and he's long-suffering with us. And that long-suffering is I, I recognize it. It leads me to turn away from my sin and to walk toward God because of the kindness that he's shown us. It leads me, it brings me to repentance. And it's that that leading us to heaven. And Eden says that uh, bringing many sons to glory. <clears throat> as, as we look around, or probably easier to look in the mirror, typically as I look in the mirror, glory is not the word I use to describe, right? It, it just, it's uh, in process is it best, right? Just, just not quite there. It's, it's not glorious. So what's he talking about in bringing many sons to glory? He's using the word glory there to speak of, of heaven itself. He does so in several passages in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, verse 10. Paul writes, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. That's heaven itself. That's what he's, he's reminding us of, and that's what he's going to provide for us. He also uses it in in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10 where Peter writes after you have suffered for a little while that is how he describes this life on this earth the god of all grace who called you in to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect confirm strengthen and establish you so he's talking about that he he leads he brings many to glory he leads us to heaven Let's meditate on that for just a moment and this, this idea that he leads us to heaven. Heaven is where God is. As he begins to talk about leading us to glory, he starts out by, by focusing on who Jesus is, who God is. He says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. In bringing many sons to glory. Him who is for whom everything is, through whom everything is. He begins to look at him as the, the exalted one, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord and giver of life. And that is his, his role in bringing them to glory. Think about, think about the glories of heaven for a moment. I, I don't know about you, when I think about the glories of heaven, the first place my mind goes is the streets of gold. Right? And I love that, that the scripture describes it, the streets of, of pure gold, so pure it's clear. That's just an amazing thought. And I think that, that's just, that's, that's astounding in its beauty. I think about the myriad or the multitude of angels that are around the throne of God and that are moving among men and they're singing the praise of God. These, these majestic beings, some of them have, have flaming swords. We read about that in Scripture. We see the, the power of these angelic beings. We see the, the majesty of them as they fly around the throne of God and sing His praise. And I think, wow, that's glory. Think about the saints of old. Moses, David, Elijah, 
of, of, of then of our loved ones who've gone before and being reunited with them. And we see the, the glories. But, but what would all of those things be if God was not there? They're empty, are they not? Suddenly, it's no longer heaven. Suddenly, it's maybe even hell itself because it's absent from the true and the living God. As we think about heaven, I think it's important for us to set our hearts on Him from whom and through whom are all things. That is the delight of heaven. But as we think about him leading us to heaven, I want to suggest another proposition for our meditation, and that is that Jesus is a Savior. And I recognize uh, some of you are like, uh, Pastor, not real profound, right? We, we got that one. We, we learned that in children's worship when, when we were three, right? We get that. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I want us to think about it a little bit more deeply because I think that this passage subtly shows us something about Jesus as our Savior that, that I hope will enrich our sense of what that means. He says, For it was fitting. Fitting means it suits Jesus. The same word is used in, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, when John the Baptist uh, Jesus asked John to baptize him, and John says, no, you need to baptize me. And Jesus says, go ahead, permit it at this time, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He says it suits this moment. This is, this is appropriate for this moment. So it is fitting for Jesus in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. To perfect Jesus? Wait a minute. What does that mean? What, what are we talking about to perfect? Well, the word perfect is the, the Greek word telos, which means the, the end, the goal. It's the word that Jesus used when he was upon the cross and he said, it is finished. He used it in the perfect sense, to telestai. It is finished means it has reached its ultimate. It's reached the goal. This is the, the ultimate objective. This is why I came here. And I have accomplished that. To perfect Jesus means he is, he is fulfilling who He is. To begin to understand that God exists, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and exists before there was such a thing as time, before there was such a thing as space, before there was anything that had been created, before there was any matter at all, God exists, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in complete perfection, absolutely wonderful. And in that relationship, God the Father is always God the Father. God the Son always is begotten of the Father, that there is that relationship of Father and Son. And the Spirit is always proceeding from the Father and the Son. And they have this beautiful relationship before there are people, before there is any creation, before there is time, before anything, in and of themselves, this is where they exist. And in a part of that, Jesus is a Savior. It's who He is. He is a Savior. 
central to his being, to his, his very character, essential to his nature as God, as the second person of the Trinity, he is a Savior. And because he is a Savior, the Father says, we will redeem a people for ourselves, so that you, my Son, may save. Because it's who you are. And so God designs His plan never to have a perfect world that, that, that just is great from the beginning and never, nothing ever goes wrong. But at the very moment that He created the world, He created it in order to redeem a people. Because Jesus is and always has been a Savior. And because He is a Savior, it is fitting for Him to reach His fulfillment, His perfection. Through suffering. This is a magnificent God. And we see something of the beauty of Jesus and the plan of God in bringing salvation and leading us to heaven. The first reason why we should follow Jesus, our elder brother, is he frees us from death. The second is he leads us to heaven. The third, He will sanctify us. He uses that word in verse 11. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. The word sanctify means to make holy. I was trying to do an etymological study to understand where the English word holy came from and in the process I came across a, a definition that I thought was, or a description of the title or the meaning that I thought was just great from etymology online. It says that holy is stronger and more absolute than any word of cognate meaning. That which is sacred may derive its sanction from man. That which is holy has its sanctity directly from God or as connected with him. I thought that was just a great description and explanation of, of what it means that he's going to make us holy. That God is working. God himself is working to make you holy. And holiness is not an option. By that, I don't mean that, that we don't play a role. We do play a role. But it is something that God is going to do in our lives. As we look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we look at question 33, which tells us <coughs> what is justification. And notice it says justification is an act. It's an act. There's a point in time. It's a judicial act that we stand before the tribunal of God, the great throne of God, and He declares us forgiven and righteous. That's our justification. He says, you're forgiven because of the blood of my son. You are righteous because of the righteousness of my son imputed to you. This is what justification is. It's an act. It's completed. There was a moment in which we were not justified, and there was a moment in which we were justified and were justified for the rest of eternity. That's the way that it works. But sanctification is different. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. That is to say, it is a progress. It is a process. It is something that He's ongoing in our life, continually making us holy by helping us more and more to die to sin and live unto righteousness. This is what He is doing in our lives. And it is God and us working to bring about holiness in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 16 
we see something of what our responsibility is. In 1 Peter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, this, this uh, call from Peter is for us to put into action efforts to live a holy life. It isn't something that, that is just forced upon us. Uh, you're going through the book uh, in Sunday school called uh, The Whole Christ. Is that correct by uh, um, uh, Sinclair Ferguson? Great, great preacher, uh, good book. And what he's doing is he's describing a, a, an earlier work from the early 19th century called the, the uh, Marrow of Modern Divinity, which created a, a, a big controversy dealing with, with legalism and, and uh, antinomianism. Antinomianism is to live without the law or to find ourselves justified by the law. And, and he's trying to treat these two. And one of the key ideas is they, they aren't two sides of, of uh, the argument. They're actually this, the same idea. Both of them view the law as bad. And the law isn't bad. And so he's, he's trying to work through that. Well, I say that because right now in, in our society, we're wrestling with this idea of sanctification. What is sanctification? What is it to be holy? As there are those who, who want to deny the sinfulness of sin, that it's not really sinful, or they want to deny the power that we have over sin in our lives. And either way, they leave us uh, really unsanctified. But what we see here is that there is this invitation that we are to put forth an effort to live holy lives. But it isn't just our effort. We see in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 27, we're able to understand that there is something that, that, that God does with us. He says uh, in this great promise of the new covenant, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. A part of the new covenant is we're going to have the Spirit inside us and the Spirit is going to begin to produce holiness in our life. For, well, what's the Spirit's first name? Holy, right? So that's what He's going to be doing in our life. He's going to be making us holy. It's what, it's what He does. That's, that's His role in our lives. As Jesus is a Savior, the Holy Spirit is holy and He's producing holiness in our life. And because the Spirit is working in my life, because I, am, I believe that the Spirit is in me, because I believe that the commands of God are good, because I believe that the Spirit gives me power, I choose to live a holy life. And so that I'm making a choice based on faith. Faith in the present working of the Spirit of God in my life. And that faith in the present working of the Spirit of God brings about a change in my life and I begin to live a holy life. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, he puts it this way. He says, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you. Paul is telling us, put forth an effort. Why? Because God's at work in you. And as I believe that God is working in me, that's what I do. And in that way, I begin to experience uh, chapter 12, verse 14 of Hebrews. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That's how important it is, that it's, it's not an option, but the Holy Spirit is going to be producing it and we are going to be working with Him to be like Him. We will be like Him. He says in verse 11, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Remember Thomas said, Show us the Father. And Jesus did his usual, oy. And he says, have I been with you so long, Thomas? Do you not know if you've seen me? You've seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. Jesus is like the Father. And God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. Romans eight twenty nine. 
So we're going to be like Jesus. He's building that in us. It's what He's doing. That's where we're headed. We follow Jesus, our elder brother, because He frees us from death, because He leads us to heaven, because He sanctifies us, and because He joins us in worship. As we look at verses 12 and 13, you notice they're not telling us something Jesus did to us. They're telling us something Jesus did with us. Jesus was not satisfied to remain on the dais receiving our worship, but he chose to step off to join us hand in hand and to join us in worshiping God. Together we praise the Father. He says, I will sing your praise. Can't you just see Jesus joining us, singing, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Amen. And he sings the praise of God the Father with you and I. It's magnificent. And he trusts the Father. He says, I will put my trust in him. We trust the Father. Hebrews 11.6 is true of Jesus, is it not? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the one who comes to Him must believe that He exists and is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Jesus also believed. Jesus faced the temptations the same as us. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He faced the temptation we face. When we go through trials, isn't it easy and a temptation to, to forget God? To turn away from God? To not trust God? Wasn't Job's wife telling him what what the temptation with every trial is? Curse God and die? But Jesus resisted that. Instead, He trusted the Father. And He did so on our behalf. You know, as a matter of fact, I want to suggest that we consider something else. What if the miracles of Jesus demonstrate His faith instead of his deity. Here's why I say that. Was Paul God? I expected a more resounding no, but we'll settle for that. (laughs) He's absolutely not. Did Paul raise the dead? Was Peter God? Thank you. (laughs) Did he heal the lame man? Wait a minute. What does that tell me? It tells me maybe the issue is that Jesus believed. He trusted the Father fully and completely. And as a man, it was in trusting the Father that the power to accomplish this was brought about in his life. Now, he's fully God at the same time. I get that. But it seems to be that that's a part of what he's showing us even in John chapter 11 as he's about to raise Lazarus. He says to Mary in verse 40, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? It's focus on believing. The focus on faith in the central part as he's about to raise Lazarus. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. He makes a declaration of faith. He knows the Father hears him. He goes on to say, I knew that you always hear me. I believe that. But because of the people standing around, I said, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And we know what happened then, right? As he believed, 
As he says here, I will put my trust in him. And finally, Jesus is forever God and man. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised in his same body. How do we know? Because he said, reach here your finger, right? Reach here your hand. He had the scars upon his hands, the scars upon his feet, the scar upon his side, and the scar upon his brow. And I believe he must always have them, for he will always, for all of eternity, as long as we are in heaven, he will hold up his hands to the Father, showing him why we are there. Because he has paid the price. And those hands are continually interceding for us even throughout eternity and glory. Jesus, who is God, who is for all eternity with God the Father as a spirit, took upon Himself a human body for the rest of eternity because He loves you. Jesus frees you from sin, frees you from death, leads you to heaven, sanctifies you and joins you in worship. Can you follow him, your elder brother? In 1948, Harry Truman was running for president. Part of his campaign was a whistle-stop tour in which he traveled around the country and spoke to people. And during this whistle-top tour, he wanted to show people, I'm an average American. He said, I'm just like you. I was pretty convinced everybody thought, even the Chicago Tribune, I believe, wrote a headline that said, Dewey wins in landslide. Only he didn't. Truman won. He won because Americans said, he's just like us. And we can follow someone who's just like us. Jesus became a man and gave you four reasons to follow him. Because he frees you from death, because he leads you to heaven, because he sanctifies you, and he joins you in worship. Can you follow him? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you help us to recognize all that your Son has done for us and that we may follow him. In Jesus' name. Amen.